Let's get dirty, <laughs> deep down in the dirt. And I mean soil, at least in part. We have to start there, but there's more dirt we need to get into. My guest today is Caben Kramer of Tenderly Rooted Walnut Farm in Chico, California. He's a fourth generation walnut farmer. What he talks about with us today will help us begin to crack the nut on soil, allergies, the money trail, and the most perplexing problem in walnut farming today. We're gonna to talk conspiracy theories and try to sleuth out what's happening to the money. Welcome to Talk Farm to Me. This is the best place to get to know a farmer, besides maybe your farmer's market. Okay, well, this is even better because here, we can ask questions until the cows come home. And at the market, well, farmers are busy selling their stuff. If you have a burning question for a farmer, just drop me a line. I'll put a link in the show notes. Are you ready? Ready for the dirty side of farming? I am your host, Dana DePrima, and this is Talk Farm To Me. Before we get started, I just wanted to give you a little background. This interview started differently than most. In the middle of my day, taking a break from the farm or from riding, I sat and scrolled my Instagram. You know how it goes. Thumbs spinning, passing square after square, mindlessly. A favorite account that I follow put up a note on her stories that a farm she knew in California was struggling and that we should give them a boost and buy some walnuts. The most delicious walnuts, she said. So I did. Fast forward a few days and my walnuts arrived. Fast forward a few more days and they were gone. Poof. We snacked our way through all of them, lickety-split. Plain ones, savory ones, vanilla-infused ones. I needed to know more about the nuts about their struggles. And so, here we are, with Caben Kramer of Tenderly Rooted. You know, Talk Farm to Me does not usually insert ads into the podcast, but this might as well be one. The truth is, these are the most delicious and fresh walnuts, and they have a serious, serious downside. They are very hard to keep in the cabinet. I don't usually start here, but let's start with the problem. Okay. What's going on? The problem is multifaceted. What it comes down to ultimately is the decreasing amount of food dollars flowing back to farmers. Structurally with walnuts, particularly because we're walnut growers in Northern California, is the commodity market for walnuts is different than other commodity markets. There's no guaranteed backing and it's really dependent on international markets more than the domestic market. The domestic market, I think, is the fourth, and believe it's the fourth largest market. So there's three other international markets that are larger than the domestic market, which means that the majority of the walnuts grown in California end up overseas in Europe and Asia. Just a side note here. The largest producer of walnuts in the world is China, followed by the U.S. Within the U.S., California produces 99% of the walnuts, which represents around 38% of walnuts globally. 
In terms of consumption, China eats the most walnuts, followed by the U.S., Iran, and then France. So that opens up to a lot of challenges. And of course, the last couple of years, there's been significant inter-ocean challenges. And all of it stacks on top to rise the cost of inputs and lower the food dollars back to the grower. And it's deceptive because consumers aren't seeing a shift in what they spend, or if they do see a shift, it's an upward cost to consumers, while it's a downward shift to how much farmers are getting paid. Explain who's getting the money. I wish I knew. I cannot figure it out because everyone I've talked to through the supply chain is expressing solidarity with the challenges. Everyone's saying they're not getting money, and yet a lot more money is flowing away from farmer. Figure it out. Shipping costs have come way down, so it's not the shipping companies. Handler costs haven't changed at all, and they're still making the same amount of money. Chemicals have gone up. The chemical companies, and I, both the bad chemicals and the good chemicals, I'm sure they're making more, but they claim that costs to procure those chemicals have gone up. So you, you keep chasing the money around and it's very difficult to locate. I'm not sure where it ends up, honestly. I think that's part of the, don't you think that's going to set us free? <laughs> like where it's follow the money, it's yeah. got to be going somewhere. Yeah. And it's easy to fall down the hole of some kind of conspiratorial thoughts. And on my darkest days, I am not immune to it. <laughs> but I think at the end of the day, what our brains want to attach conspiracies to end up being really boring logistical challenges. And those just are a lot less fun for our brains to latch onto. And I think that at the end of the day, there's a lot fewer bad actors than it might feel like on our darkest days. That's not to say there aren't any bad actors, but I think there tends to be fewer. I think most of us get up in the morning wanting to make the world a better place and just keep food on the table for our families. I think that's true across the board and across industries. Yeah, but it's challenging. To put some kind of ballpark numbers to it, the average that we typically get over the last 20 years is about a dollar a pound back to the grower. And already that doesn't sound like much because consumers pay between eight and $10 a pound for walnuts in a grocery store. But that that's where we build our budgets around. Like we can farm walnuts and we can have a typical middle America life at a dollar a pound. The past three years, we've been hovering around 65 cents a pound. So already we have a 35% cut off the top. That's any profit we might've made gone. And so we're just barely breaking even. Some years were a few cents above break-even, some years were a few cents below break-even, and we've just been hanging on by our teeth for the last three years. This year, we're looking at getting paid 32 cents a pound. So the market has completely cratered, and what went from we're barely making it has now become we're in dire straits. Between the 65 and the 35 cents, this is where we don't know where the money's going. Correct. Now explain to me the process. You grow the walnuts. You're processing your own walnuts or no? For our sprouted walnuts, we do. You process your own sprouted walnuts, but for other like raw walnuts, Correct. you have a processor. Yeah. And so you're selling your raw walnuts to a processor. Correct. And they're the yeah. ones who are paying you less. Correct. Yeah. 
the way it would work typically is as soon as the product leaves our control, we would get paid for it. And now the risk would be on them. That's how Starbucks coffee works. That's how iron mills work. That's how just typical industry works, right? As soon as you deliver a product, you get paid. Sometimes it's a net 30 payment, but you get paid for the product. And now the risk for whatever happens to that product is on the next block in the supply chain. The way that walnuts work is when we deliver our walnuts to the handler who shells it, grades it, sorts it, packs it in containers, ships it overseas to a buyer, they wait until that buyer at the receiving port pays for that product. And then they examine that payment to see how it matched up, what deductions did the buyer create, what issues were there in transport, everything like that. They deduct all of that off of the farmer payment, and then they turn around and pay us. So we actually carry the risk of the crop from right now. We're currently carrying the risk of the crop. If there's a hard freeze that impacts the bloom, anything like that, what you think of as a typical farmer risk, we carry that risk. We carry it all the way through harvest. Then we carry the risk as it sits in someone's shipping yard. We carry the risk as it sits on a ship. We carry the risk as it sits in an overseas port. We carry the risk as it's examined by overseas buyers. We carry all of that risk, even though I don't know who those people are. I don't know what they're looking at. I don't know how long it's been sitting in our handler's dry dock. I don't know any of this information. And yet my income is directly tied to the risk associated with every piece of that chain. Remember when the ships were sitting in ports during the early months of the pandemic, sometimes for months? Definitely an added layer of complication on an already fraught way of doing business. You heard about this a little bit when we talked with Aubrey Betancourt about almonds. I'll link those episodes in the show notes. Let me know if you get any clues. And the beautiful thing about trees is that they don't have a very vested interest in macroeconomics. Trees be doing what trees be doing. And they just grow walnuts. And they keep doing that. They don't dial back their production just because the ships are sitting in port. They just keep growing walnuts, which is a beautiful thing about nature. It's one of the most freeing elements of nature, honestly, is that nature gives so little care to our economic woes. It just does what it's going to do. It also really complicates things economically sometimes. What's the storage shelf life of a walnut? That's one place where walnuts are a saving grace. Truth be told, if you walked into a Walmart or a Costco, those walnuts are probably two years old. Walnuts have a very durable shelf life. Now, as a walnut connoisseur myself, you can tell the difference between an old walnut and a fresh walnut. But most people can't because they've never been given the opportunity to have a truly delicious walnut. Now, your walnuts are going on to these ships. Give me a footprint of your business. How many walnuts, how many trees, and where do they go? I'll set us in context of the larger walnut industry. We are very small farm, and we're in the movie Up there's that initial scene where all the skyscrapers are being built around the old man's house and he refuses to move, right? That's our farm. We're surrounded by huge farms, seven, 800,000 acre walnut farms. And our farm is 60 acres. And that includes all the buildings on it. And that includes the out of production ground. So we have about 45 acres of producing walnut ground. And the rule of thumb is typically you need about 100 acres of walnut ground to support one family. 
we're currently supporting three families off of 45 acres, which is part of what drove us to innovate and go direct to consumer and do some other things because we had to create some more economic viability from less ground. So that said, even with 45 acres of walnuts, which is very small, only about 10% of our prop goes to sprouted walnuts. The rest of it goes to the commodity market. So this year we produced about 270,000 pounds of walnuts on our farm. And the majority of that ended up all around the world. Now, as far as PR is concerned, I know that almonds have some PR problems and even now, I guess, pistachios related to salinity and draining water. Do you guys have PR problems like that in the walnut biz? We do. For whatever reason, there seems to be a persistent fear of the walnut allergy. And I say that because I'm, I'll post something about walnuts and my comments will fill with people just, but what about the allergy? But what about the allergy? But what about the allergy? And I don't see that on peanut butter brands. I don't even see that on soy brands, right? Yes, people have legitimate and life-threatening allergies to walnuts and please keep yourself safe. And there are other legitimate products that carry a similar allergy that don't tend to have this kind of pervasive cultural fear around the allergy. I'm not quite sure where it came from, but the number of people who don't have a walnut allergy but are afraid of walnuts because of the allergy seems outsized. Interesting. It is interesting. Yeah. I've been having conversations with folks about allergies a lot. Obviously, nut allergies are totally legit. And if you have an allergy to something, you've got to avoid it. But I do wonder about, from an industry perspective, if allergies are happening more because of pesticides or the way we're forming. There's probably some Venn diagram out there that like, this is a legit allergy to the actual nature of the nut. But I am curious about the impact of our interference with nature on the products, whether it's milk or wheat or nuts. Absolutely. I don't doubt that in the least. Yeah, I mean, that's a conspiracy theory. I don't have a problem jumping on board with because I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think it's absolutely true. Not a conspiracist either. No, just, I know. Is that a conspiracy theory or just a good question? Not sure. That's a great point. I guess it depends on who you ask, right? If you ask Big Ag, they'll say it's a conspiracy. But if you look at the data, it's not. If you Even if you look at the nutrient density of our food from, uh, there is a great case study done in the UK about oranges and they tracked the amount of vitamin C in oranges over 80 years or something ridiculous like that. And there was a demonstrable decrease in the nutrient density of fresh oranges because of, so I would say a lot of that has to do with soil degradation because you can't have something, again, I don't feel like people understand this. They go into the grocery store and they look at the nutrition label on the back of a product. And what most people fail to realize is that's a USDA standardized nutrition label. So our sprouted walnuts have to carry the same nutrition label as a raw walnut because the USDA has not done the verification process to actually determine the difference between the two. So we have to be USDA compliant, which means that the nutrition label we put on the back is not necessarily a reflection of the product in the bag. It's a reflection of the USDA standards, which I understand from a lot of perspectives. But we tend to treat that nutrition label as 
God, King, and Judge. And it's really not. like The only way for nutrients to get into any food we grow is for it to pull it out of the soil. Like That's the way, whether it's your soy or your corn or your oranges or your walnuts, it comes from the soil it grows in. Or your beef, absolutely. So I, I love soil. To me, that's my happy place is caring for soil. But you cannot have good fruit if you don't have good soil. I want to talk for a second about when you mentioned you're selling most of your walnuts to the commodities market, but you've had to innovate. So let's talk about that innovation and then we'll get into the dirt. I love it. Back in 2019, when the price went from a dollar a pound down to about 78 cents a pound, my wife and I realized, by the way, because we're a small farm, we don't have employees on the farm. It's just my wife and I who farm it. We realized that we either had to get an off-farm job, which is extremely common, or we had to do farming in a different way. We had to innovate something on the farm. What we realized is that our backgrounds and our passions is we wanted to connect more directly with consumers. We wanted to build more story narrative about farming. And we love hospitality and hosting. And what that really means is we love bringing delight into people's lives. We wanted to create something from our farm that people could walk away from with a smile on their face and a big, deep sigh. That's what drives us as people. So we began having the conversations in 2019. Do we pivot? Do we go into silo pasture? Do we start running 200 hogs through our orchard on rotation? Do we scale up our chicken operation? We had about 200 chickens at the time. We thought, do we scale that up to be more commercial grade? How do we engage this? And we had this pivotal conversation where we said, what do we have access to that other people don't have access to? People grow chickens and hogs and stuff all over the country. In every state, these animals are grown. But walnuts are very unique. Walnuts don't grow in other parts of the country. Okay, we have access to walnuts. That's something we have access to that other people don't. But we also can't sell walnuts in this area because this is the one area where all the walnuts are grown. It's like trying to sell some kinds of wine in France, right? You just, you've got to get out of that area to really sell it well. And then we realized if we get out of the area, people won't know the difference between our walnut and the one grown down the street. So we have to create some kind of a value add because we can't compete on price with Costco, even though we know that our quality is better. So we have to do something tangible for the consumer to see that this is different. My wife is actually allergic to walnuts. She can't eat them. They cut up her mouth. Her mom is anaphylactically allergic. She carries an EpiPen in her purse. So we had been sprouting walnuts for our personal consumption for a while. And I like the flavor better. My wife can eat them without a reaction. And so we thought, let's just see if other people like sprouted walnuts. And so we started doing very small batch, selling two or three pounds at a time to friends, essentially. Sorry, just for one second, explain yeah. to me how your wife's allergy changes. What's the chemistry difference? Yeah. So the majority of walnut allergies are in relation to the tannins that are on the skin of the walnut. That's not universally true. And we've shipped about 11,000 boxes of walnuts since we started this business. And about eight out of 10 people who come to us saying that they have a walnut allergy and choose to try it. Again, we're not medical experts. So that has to be a personal choice. Eight out of 10 who choose to try it can eat it without a reaction. And then two in 10 typically still have a reaction. So there are still other allergens in the walnut. 
but a majority are in the tannins on the outside. And then what one step of the sprouting process is to deep soak them in water for 24 hours. And that process releases those tannins and it drains off in the water. That's part of what gives a sprouted walnut a more buttery taste and less bitter because the tannins are bitter, just like in your wine tannins create that bitterness and that bite in the wine. This is after you shell them, you soak them? Correct. And typically the classic walnut flavor of kind of that sharpness of taste or a little bit of bitterness of taste, that's also the tannin that you're tasting. All right. So you soak them. You're doing other things to them. You're doing some fun stuff. (laughs) We do. We have a little secret sauce in our process because walnuts are a little bit more finicky. Sprouting an almond, which, and I do say almond, I don't say almond, and that's because of where I grew up. It's a vernacular thing. (laughs) Okay, thank you for translating. People's reactions to that. So an almond and an almond are the same thing. They're those little nuts coming off of trees. Almonds sprout really easy. You can actually get a sprout to form after just soaking them in 24 hours of water. Walnuts are more finicky, so we had to do a little bit more work to figure it out. And we stop our process before any kind of a bud pushes, but we get that biochemical chain reaction going, right? So we're removing the phytic acid, we're removing the tannins, we're breaking up some of the longer molecular chains to release some of the fiber and protein and minerals and vitamins in there to actually start creating roots. So to release those without actually changing the nut itself. So it creates a more bioavailable product. So that way, when we eat it, our body can absorb a higher percentage of all the good things in the moment. And because we have spent years rebuilding our soil here, and we've actually sent our walnuts out to a private lab for sampling, we know that there's a higher percentage of things like zinc and manganese and other good, hard to get things in our walnuts compared to a standard USDA label walnut. Interesting. So it's on your packaging. The name of the company is Tenderly Rooted and obviously the good sun in California. And it results in this good fruit that you're talking about. And that center point is the good soil. So let's talk about that and how you're managing your soil and your trees. Absolutely. I will say that all of it happens on a continuum from like our ideals to our nightmares. And somewhere in between those two things is reality. And that's a constantly moving target. So I grew up on this farm. I'm the fourth generation of my family here. My parents still live on the property and my parents have been farming for 40 years before we moved back to take over. Ever since my great grandfather turned this land from non-commercially viable agriculture land to commercially viable agriculture land back in the 1940s, it's been conventionally farmed. So at the beginning, there was a lot of tilling and then more chemicals came in and there was a lot of chemical application until we moved back and I wanted to change and pivot the farm. And honestly, it's probably going to be a decade long process, but we immediately started, we immediately stopped spraying certain chemicals that are highly toxic and we immediately began planting cover crop and we were told You've got to let the ground sit for a certain amount of time before you plant cover crop or you're just wasting seed. And our approach was the more we can get anything to grow, the better it's going to be in the long run. So it's okay that we're not getting a perfect return. It's okay that it's a little bit inefficient, but we're doing this to help the soil. So we started planting cover crop immediately. And that's been a huge shift in the composition of the organic matter in the ground. In the summer times here, our soil is very dusty. 
um, very sandy. And so we end up getting a lot of dust blown off. And now what I say is let the neighbor's soil become our soil because our soil doesn't go away because we keep it covered year round. And so our neighbors will often blow blankets of dust onto our farm in the middle of summer. So that's one change. Then we also started applying compost tea through our solid set irrigation. So because we have trees, we have solid set irrigation to make sure they're watered through the heat of the summer. And we apply a compost tea, which is a living microbial mix onto our crop. And so we've seen a huge increase in the number of earthworms and mycorrhizal fungi and other beneficial microbial colonies that will colonize the roots of our cover crop and trap moisture in the upper regions and shove carbon down into the lower regions and generally begin to build healthy trophic layers in the soil, organic composition and cycling, which of course then helps our roots for walnut trees. Uh, the yeah, trees on your farm are really old or young to old? How long does a walnut tree last? Yeah, conventional wisdom says that you can get about 30 years of good crops off walnut trees. Walnuts are native to the Oral Mountains in Central Asia. So Kazakhstan is native to walnuts. And there you'll find walnut trees growing for hundreds of years. 100, 200 years. Huge, beautiful, gigantic trees. So part of the reason why walnuts are only viable for about 30 years in our commercial structure is because we don't build our commercial farms for the long term of the tree. We build it for the efficiency of harvest. And there are some drawbacks to that. There are some things that with some new kind of thinking we could change in the way that we do solid orchard farming. But you'll notice a trend, especially if you drive through California on I-5. Farms are increasingly planting narrower and closer together. And more and more crops are converting to essentially hedgerow harvesting. So starting grapes, it's moved over to olives. They've now released a cultivar of almonds that can be hedgerow harvested. And they're trying to do it with walnuts. The challenge with walnuts is that a walnut tree is what's considered like an alpha species. It changes the soil chemistry around the walnut tree, just like an oak tree does chestnuts are that way pecans can be that way they're meant to be these large voluminous trees that stay in the landscape for hundreds of hundreds of years they're meant to literally be the canopy that other things grow under they're not meant to be hedgerowed there's nothing about a walnut tree that wants to be hedgerowed a walnut tree wants to occupy 50 foot diameter space 100 feet tall that's a healthy mature walnut tree that's not how we farm walnuts for better or for worse. So we tend to keep our walnut trees shorter, maybe 30 or 40 feet tall, narrower, maybe 25 feet wide in the canopy. And that's to increase the number of trees we can fit per acre, which of course increases the yield per acre. I've been geeking out on a lot of um, canopy and cover, a lot of grass farmers and corn farmers who are you know, dealing with very similar issues. So that's super interesting. Talk to me about your market your direct consumer market obviously not right there but you're getting your walnuts to me in new york <laughs> what are you guys looking at how's that how's the marketing going how are you getting into the market that is a fantastic question we are not marketers we are not good salespeople. 
we're very friendly, hospitable people, but we like being authentic and genuine. We don't like being salesy and pushy. So throughout the couple of years we've been doing this, we keep running into this obstacle about, oh, that's right. We have to keep remembering to tell people that we have this delicious product that they'll love. Like we have to remind ourselves that we have to remind people of it. And we're honestly not that clever when it comes to finding markets, but we have gotten a little bit lucky. And the stroke of luck for us was one day sitting around the kitchen table, we were scrolling Instagram and we said, gosh, we just love the content that these people produce. We just think they do some amazing things in the world. We love the content they're bringing. And I looked over at my wife and I said, what we produce is sprouted walnuts. What can we just send them some as just a thank you and just say, thanks for being you. Thanks for bringing your energy into the world. Uh, we love what you bring into the world. And here's a little bit of our love that we bring into the world through the form of spread moments. And so we did that in early, I believe it was, yeah, early 21. We just sent about 10 boxes out to people on the internet who we hadn't met, but we just love what they do. And it turned out that it was not even in our minds at the time, but a few of them started stacking on them in their Instagram stories or talking about them on their Instagram stories. And then customers started coming. And in particular, one influencer, Sharon McMahon, who calls herself America's government teacher. She's amazing. Okay, so now she has, yeah. So now she has over a million followers. When we first sent her Sprout and Walnuts, she had about 250,000 followers. And overnight she transformed our Sprouted Walnuts from a hobby to a business. She got on her stories one Friday afternoon and said, these are delicious. You guys need to go get yourself some proud walnuts. And within 36 hours, we had 500 new customers and 3000 people on a waiting list to get more walnuts because we did not have the scale at that point. So she really gets most of the credit for our marketing. And so there was a little bit in there where we're a viral sensation. And then as things do, we cycled out of that, which is totally legit and normal. And then we had this moment where we said, okay, now we have all this momentum. Now we have to build a real business. And how do we go about doing that? So that's been the longer, slower, harder work, but still, I mean, even in, in your own story, Molly Blint sharing our walnuts, incredibly generous and kind of her, that it still continues to be one of the most effective marketing strategies for us is we just send free ones to people we love with no expectation. We have sent so many more walnuts out than anyone knows because we just love to give love to people. And then as people choose to generously share us in their stories, we're incredibly grateful and we don't expect anything, uh, but we appreciate everything. And that has been so far the bulk of our marketing efforts. It sounds like it's working, except for the fact that the other side of the business has a plummeting line. That's Correct. really the rub at the moment. Are you thinking yeah. about shifting more of your walnuts into the sprouted department? We would absolutely love to. The goal would be 100% of our crop goes through sprouted walnuts. If we could free ourselves of the whole commodity market shenanigans where we're waiting up to nine months for payments on a crop that's been gone for nine months and that whole cycle of not knowing how much we're getting paid and who's paying us when. And if we could control that more because customers pay when they buy, that would revolutionize the economics of the farm. The challenge, of course, then is that we have to build a market. And what we're realizing in building a market is that education is the biggest piece. People often don't know the health benefits of walnuts generally, and they certainly have never heard of a scrum walnut. 
So we are constantly engaged in education, which again, because we're not salesy people, we get exhausted from that more frequently than we should. And then we forget that it's been three weeks since we've said anything about Scratch Wallets on any kind of a platform. So yes, that's the goal, but there has to be people to buy. We can't just go 100% and then have inventory sitting there. It's the tech world has fooled us, hoodwinked us into thinking that if you build it, they will come. But the reality is for most people, you have to actually have a market to sell into. And that's true. I'm sure every farmer you've ever interviewed agrees that, yeah, it's great if you can produce something, but you've got to have someone who wants it. And so that's the consistent challenge. And there's obviously enough people in this country who would love our product that there could easily be a thousand acres of walnuts going to sprout walnuts once we had a healthy market. But right now it's a very nascent market. It's very early on in its development and we're having to do a hundred percent of the market building ourselves. We don't have a team of people behind us. It's just my wife and I, we don't have a smart marketing board of people whose full-time job is just to push it into marketplaces. So it's a slow build, but we think it's a worthwhile effort. And so that market is mainly direct to consumer, but not as much like small grocery. I'm just saying like Walmart is getting their walnuts from the commodities market or wherever they come from. And they're two years old and you're not getting in there. Correct. And a lot of that has to do with, there's a certain number of SKUs that a lot of the chain grocers need. They need to carry a minimum number of SKUs from the company, and then they need a certain guarantee of volume throughput. And then they also do a lot of back ordering, right? So if they have something in inventory that's gone past the best by date, then they ship it back to the manufacturer. And then it's our responsibility to process and trash that essentially. We're not at the scale to manage that. So we do have some local grocery partnerships, but it's literally us driving and dropping off a case of walnuts whenever they need it. And then we have a small partnership with Equal Exchange and they're fantastic to work with. So they're primarily doing coffee and chocolate from around the world based on fair trade principles. And I spontaneously got in conversation with one of their West Coast buyers about the walnut industry. And his reflection was what you're telling me about how walnuts are grown and sold in the United States sounds like how coffee is grown and sold in like Nicaragua. And said, I think there's space for our business model to come help walnut growers in California. And so they're helping us again, because this land was commercially farmed for so long and we're doing things differently now, we're not organic certified currently, even though we're doing like 90% of the work. So they're helping us create a market for transitional product and they're being incredibly amazing to work with as far as asking the questions of, okay, how much is this costing you as the farmer to do this? And how much should we as middleman be paying you for those efforts? And then we'll figure out how to work with the grocery stores to set a shelf price on the other side of it. Again, they have a lot of experience with that, with coffee and chocolate. And so we've been working with them. We're still just in California with them. We haven't expanded any farther than that, but hopefully in a year or two, if we can really get some good traction and some good market engagement and grocers, we could expand through their network. And we would love to be in more places, but it's got to be a matter of finding the right partner to do it with. That sounds like a really interesting model from a different, completely different product to what you're doing. 
you sit there in the middle of walnut land in California, and I know that you said that your farm is a little bit like the house in Up, but are you are you rubbing elbows with the other walnut growers, and are you guys commiserating over this plummet? What's going on there? What are you hearing? Yeah, we absolutely commiserate. And it is really interesting because I will tell other growers what we're doing and I'll encourage them. You guys should go direct consumer too. And consistently the response from farmers is that's something that our handler should be doing. The person that we sell our crop to, they should be building the direct consumer network. Fair, but why sit on our laurels? Let's do it. Most walnut farmers are not in walnut farming because they love entertaining strangers, right? Trees don't talk back, trees don't move, trees are very low maintenance, and that fits a certain personality. So most people who end up walnut farming are not the kind of person who are interested in growing an Instagram following. It's just different personalities, and that's all good. And it creates a challenge of saying, okay, how do we come together to actually work on this problem together? I know a lot of my farming friends this year are honestly not even going to harvest their crop because they can't afford it and they're getting off farm jobs and they're just trying to hold on to the land for this year. And that's challenging because the trees need constant care to keep producing well. If we don't care for them throughout the year, diseases can infest bad pests or rodents or other damaging elements of ecology can get in and take root. And they're just much harder to extricate later on without using extreme measures of toxic chemicals and other things. So there is that sense of you, you can't just ignore a tree. You have to care for it if you want food from it five years from now. Annual crops of brassicas and cereals, you just plant again the next year and it'll come back up and you don't have to worry about it. But if these trees die, the amount of time it takes to take them down, clean the ground, replant and get a crop, it'll be 10 years between a tree dying and getting another commercial crop from it. If your neighbors decide that the price is too low for them to harvest this year, not to be opportunistic, but doesn't that help you a little bit? All right, open your ears a little bit here. Stop multitasking. Get ready to lift your eyebrows. This is a more important question than it sounds like. Unfortunately, there won't be a scarcity of walnuts, even if my neighbors don't harvest, because a majority of the walnut industry in California is grown by the handlers the rest of us sell our crops into. So this is where it gets a little conspiratorial. The handlers are actually incentivized to keep the prices low because it pushes all of us small farms out. They still make the money on the handling. They take some losses on their orchards for a couple of years. But at the end of the day, and they can go buy a bunch more land at a reduced price because there's a bunch of farmers who can't cope in that system. So already a majority of the walnut industry is controlled by just a few companies who do all the handling and international selling. And a lot of the small farms sell into those systems because they control the market. Where's the accountability then? Meaning you sell your walnuts into the handler who also has his or her walnuts in that same system. Are you sure they're getting the same price for their walnuts, that low price that you're getting? There is no accountability. There's zero. We don't get to see reports. What we get to do is we get to look at the USDA data that comes out about three years later, right? So I can look back this year 
on the 2019 crop. And I can compare what I got in 2019 to what the USDA says the average was. But that's the average across the entire walnut industry that's not localized to our system. With our, there, there's a whole bunch of other factors. So the best accountability is three years late and too broad of a brushstroke to even parse through. Are the handlers, have you seen them with new cars or houses or? Always. Always. <laughs> Always. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Look at us. Yes, We're like out. conspiracy theorists. Right. And that, uh, well, and part of it too is diversified farmers tend to survive moments like this better. And I don't mean that like people with five acres who have six different crops. What I mean is people with 2000 acres and three different crops, right? So individually, each crop system is still a large farm, but collectively the farm company is diversified. So for example, in this region of California, we grow a ton of rice. And then along the river systems, we walnuts because walnuts need that loose, loamy soil. But then in the Central Valley of the rest of California, it's a very heavy clay soil where rice grows. So a lot of the larger farmers around us are diversified into walnuts, peaches, rice, and oftentimes something else as well. So this year, walnuts are incredibly low, right? Historic all-time low to the point where because of, unfortunately, the war in Ukraine, rice has soared. Rice has gone up in value, which, by the way, rice is already a government-subsidized crop. They have a guaranteed price that they get, so they get loan, and then they get overloan for the market. So right now, if you look at what rice is getting overloan compared to what walnut farmers are getting, as farmers, we're getting paid the exact same on a per-pound basis. So rice is getting about 35 cents a pound, Walnuts are getting about 32 cents a pound. If you go into your grocery store and you grab a pound of rice and a pound of walnuts, they are not the same price, right? Rice growers structure their farms, assuming that they're going to be getting between seven and $10 per hundred weight. So seven to 10 cents a pound. Walnut growers build our farms based on getting about a dollar a pound. So usually it's about a tenfold difference between rice and walnuts. Right now they're equal, which means if you're diversified into rice, you're making a killing this year. Now, a lot of those rice farmers also have walnuts. So they're just shunting over a bunch of those profits into the walnut losses. They're fine. They don't feel it. They get some tax write-off. Maybe they don't get to buy their fancy new truck this year. They'll buy one next year. And then they keep going. What's really impacting is essentially single crop farmers like us. And we are diversifying in small ways, but it's like really marketplace, like farmer's market kind of diversification, not commercial scale diversification. And really we're doing that for the soil, not necessarily for the economics. So yes, if people around me don't harvest this year, that could theoretically help. And also no, it won't really make a difference. Interesting. What's the conversation like around the dinner table with your parents who are still there on the farm and have been in this business for so long? The conversation is things that go down will always come up and that's never gone this far down. My response is, so I took USDA data. USDA doesn't publish digitally any of their crop data before 1980, at least for walnuts. So I went back to 1980, which my parents were farming then in 1980. And said, okay, here was the price per pound in 1980. And let's just track it on inflation. And I stopped in 2019. So I stopped before the crazy inflation we had recently. So let's just look at kind of normal standard 39 years of just normal inflation. And then let's also put in the USDA data of how much you've been paid per pound over those 39 years. 
only nine of those 39 years kept track with inflation, which means for 30 years, we've been losing to inflation. Think about it like a farmer's dollar being like a foreign currency that you're exchanging with the US dollar, right? It starts in 1980 being equal one to one. By 1990, one farmer dollar is only worth about 80 cents of an American dollar. By 1990, it goes down. Now, our same farmer dollar that we carried from 1984 through crop right rotation over and over over all these 39 years, that same farmer dollar is worth only about 48 cents in 2019. And now inflation has gone up and our price has gone down even more. So part of the conversation around the kitchen table is the realization that the choice to actively stay in farming on the commodity market is actively walking ourselves into poverty. We are actively walking ourselves into a deflated dollar. The purchasing power parity of our crop dollars compared to the US market dollar has been decreasing steadily for the last 40 years and is now accelerating in its deflation instead of coming closer to the market. So had we been tracking with inflation, we should be getting about $1.70 a pound for walnuts compared to the 1980 price, just tracking with inflation. We're getting 32 cents a pound. So the gap between just a normal expected, yep, we're not getting any wealthier on walnuts than we were in 1980, it's exact same. And reality is a huge difference. So the conversations are, at what point do we pull the crazy cord and say this enough is enough? And that conversation is happening around thousands of dinner tables all over this country, not just in walnuts, but certainly in walnuts as well. Farmers every year closing their doors saying, enough is enough, I can't do it anymore. General consumers tend to be unaware of the existential crisis that most farmers spend every month of the year living in. It is so important to know this, and I am grateful to Caben for being so honest and filling us in on this commodity market conundrum. It feels a little bit like one of these, oh, we've always done it this way kind of situations, and it's obviously a broken system. Like Cabin says, there's little to no accountability. And this is not the only commodities market where producers are selling their product to handlers who are keeping the prices down because they can and gobbling up smaller farms. I'm gonna link a dairy episode in the show notes so you can compare the two, hauntingly similar. And we let it continue because we don't know it exists. When we shop at Costco or at the supermarket, now we know. The question is, what will we do about it? For one, you can buy direct from the farmer. In this case, Caven and his wife, Jen. The walnuts they lovingly sprout are delicious. They don't leave that itchy walnut tingle in your mouth and the value from the soil pumps through the nuts too. It's getting dirty here on Talk Farm to me, but if we don't get the dirt from farmers, we will think there's nothing wrong and nothing we can do about the dwindling number of small farms. If you learned something new and interesting from this episode, which I assume you have since you're still here listening, do me a personal favor that will take you less than one minute. Share this podcast episode with a friend or with someone you think will find it interesting. This is how the show has grown and will continue to grow. Thank you. You're the best. Keep on listening. We have a lot more episodes coming your way, including Direct Market Beef, Temple Grandin, and Black Row Cropper, PJ Haney. 
As always, I am your host, Dana DePrima, always thrilled to bring farmers right to you. This is Talk Farm to Me. See you soon. Thank you.